Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Cassidy McDonough from the Services Group and Kyle Tangay from R&D Addictive Motive on this show. Usually I introduce our guests at the beginning of each episode, but since this is a special episode, I want to mix things up a bit and ask you what is your background and how did you uh, end up at Active Motive? Maybe Cassidy, you can start first. Hi, well, my name is Cassidy McDonough, like you said, and I currently run the cut and tack pipeline for Actimotif. I am a group leader and manager in the services department. And uh, my name is Kyle Tengway. I have been in the San Diego biotech space for about five years now, and I'm currently working on uh, cut and tag for active motif in the uh, research and development department. Coming to the science part of this episode, which focuses on the method cut and tag, which is a native tagmentase-assisted assay developed by Stephen Hennikovs and colleagues. The original paper was published in 2019 in Nature Communications, and we already did an episode with Stephen Hennikov about the new developments out of his laboratory. Please check out the link in the show notes. Before we go into the details of the method, I wanted to start by giving an overview of cut and tag and how it's different from chip. Cut and tag is based on the same principles as ChIP-seq, but with several changes to the protocol that are advantages. Cut and tag uses unfixed cells bound to concannabinoid A beads, and the antibody incubation is performed with cells in their native state. Directly following an antibody binding, the chromatin is digested and NGS libraries are prepared in a single step by tagmentation using the protein ATN5 transposome enzyme that has been preloaded with sequencing adapters. The first of these transposase-based methods was developed by Active Motif, employing a patented antibody-guided transposase assay and later evolved into cut and tag. Can you give us a short breakdown of cut and tag? Well, uh, cut and tag stands for cleavage under targets and tagmentation. Uh, and it's a method for investigating protein chromatin interactions. So epigenetic, it's an epigenetic assay like uh, ATAC or like CHIP. Um, cotton tag specifically relies on a protein A, TN5 transposase fusion protein, uh, and it localizes to the region of interest and can generate a sequence ready library just in situ. And cotton tag an enzyme called TN5, as you just mentioned, cuts DNA, and that's a sequencing adapters to the fragmented DNA. How does the TN5 work? Uh, well, it's a fusion protein uh, with a protein A domain and a TN5 uh, fused together. The protein A segment localizes to antibodies that the researcher adds for the epitope of interest uh, during the TN5 binding step. Uh, and then the TN5 itself is activated during the tagmentation step. Um, and upon activation, the TN5 transposase uh, fragments the double-stranded DNA on each side of the epitope of interest uh, and then ligates the DNA oligo insert um, that is loaded, uh, preloaded onto the transposase. And that DNA insert, um, those are sequencing adapters. So it basically enables us to purify the DNA and uh, amplify libraries straight off of it. So you already yeah, uh, described the, the procedure of cut and tag. Um, and a similar method to cut and tag is CHIP, and this was like the gold standard of localizing proteins on the DNA. Uh, what is the difference between cut and tag compared to this um, established method, CHIP? 
So cut and tag and chip are both pretty similar assays. They use an antibody to target a factor of interest for a researcher to generate peak data. However, cut and tag is more efficient in the protocol. It is doing an adapter ligation step, like Kyle said before, in situ with the T and 5 transposase. Plus, cut and tag doesn't need to have the cross-linking or chromatin extraction step that you have in chip. And also, it's nice because you use a lot less cells. CHIP usually uses around like 2 million to 10 million. And with our cut and target service and cut and target kit, we get around 5,000 cells for really well-defined histone marks of interest and really good quality cells to about like 100,000 is what we recommend in our services. So it's nice because it's a lower, less material and also a faster and more efficient protocol because you end up with a sequence ready library at the end. So you already gave a nice rundown of the method itself, but maybe we can go a little bit in more detail. So looking at the protocol of Cut and Tech, there are three main steps. Uh, first, there is uh, native cells are permeabilized. Second, the cells are incubated with a specific antibody, as already mentioned. And last, the DNA is fragmented by tegmentation by the TN5. So let's start with the starting material. Um, what kind of samples can be processed with Cut and Tech right now? with the services and the kit, maybe there's a difference. And what is the requirement in terms of quality and amount of cells and tissue? So currently we offer cut and tag for cultured cells. Um, our cut and tag it kit can go down to about 5,000 cells if your cells have a highly conserved mark in it and your cell quality is like more than 95% viable. <laughs> and so... That's really nice with the cut and tag it kit because that get, offers a lot of researchers who are doing this assay at their current labs to be able to use less cells. But for our cut and tag it service, we do recommend sending about 100,000 cells. And we like to keep that for consistency. Usually we are able to get really well data for histone marks. So our current cut and tag it services and our kits are specifically focused around histone marks. We are trying to move over to transcription factors and we're also looking into tissue currently. So be out like be looking out in the future for our transcription factors and our tissue. We are currently in the process of moving that over to a kit and a service. So 5,000 cells really sounds challenging. It sounds to be challenging because it's really a low amount of cells. Um, is this reproducible? So in, obviously in your hands, because you have a lot of experience, it is. But um, are there any like challenges that uh, the customer would need to take into account? Well, it's the same sort of uh, drawback that we list on our website. The 5,000 cells, we've gotten it to work, but it only works for highly conserved marks. Uh, so that's why for services, we ask for 100,000 cells. So the first step of the protocol is to immobilize the beat, the cells on concanavalin A beads. Uh, what are con A beads and what do they do? So concanavalin A is a lectin that comes from legumes, actually, uh, and it binds to the glycolipids and glycoproteins found in both the cell membrane and the nuclear envelope. Uh, and they're very useful in this prep because they immobilize the template material, the cells of the nuclei, during each step of the prep. Uh, 
because the concanovalent A, it's uh, attached to a magnetic bead. So you can use a plate magnet to effectively immobilize either cells or nuclei. Uh, and that's important. The mag uh, magnetic bead strategy is important for this assay because uh, we need this assay requires numerous wash steps, you know, altering the uh, concentration of digitonin, uh, et cetera. So um, in an assay with lots of wash steps, it's important to have a good method of immobilizing the template material. Another benefit is that this makes uh, the prep uh, compatible with most lab automation, as opposed to something like a, a prep that relies on uh, spin column purification, where you'd you know, it'd be much more difficult to put something like that on a robot, uh, but there's already robots that have plate magnets and, you know, working off of magnetic beads makes it uniquely automatable. So those are the main benefits there. Yeah. So my next question would be indeed about the, the, yeah, if it's possible to use nuclei instead of cells, but you already mentioned that it is possible to use um, nuclei instead of cells because the original publication only used cells, I believe. And But if you also can use nuclei, this really, I would think, uh, opens up the possibility to use other sample types like plants or something like that because you just could like prepare the nuclei and then use it. I've been extracting nuclei for my most recent cut and tag experiments uh, from uh, mouse tissues. Uh, and I haven't noticed any difference in binding efficiency between whole cells and nuclei. So a little bit more uh, established work might be necessary before I can say that it'll work with plants. But um, I know that I've, I've been working with extracted nuclei this entire time. So Yeah, the, the, pl the plant thing was only from the top of my head because this is some questions I get from tech support that... Can I use this? And if you and if I can say, well, extract the nuclear and then you're fine, then it's it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's something that we're looking into doing, and we're trying to get that also out in our services and as a kit itself too. So it's something that we really are of interest in putting work into to make sure that we can actually guarantee those results. So if we move down the, the protocol further, um, the second step is the incubation of the cells with the primary antibody. Um, in every method that uses antibodies, uh, the selection of the antibody is critical, obviously. Um, what are the requirements of antibodies in the cut and tag assay? So um, currently at Actimotif, we suggest using histone marks that have been validated for cut and tag. Unfortunately, we don't get the flexibility that we have in chip in cut and tag because we aren't cross-linking any of the antibodies to the DNA. So it's harder to actually um, get those factors that are naturally occurring without having that cross-linking. So that's why we're limiting our services currently to histone marks, not transcription factors, where it's less, um, there's less of them inside the cell. So it's easier when you go forward into that. In cut and tag, the antibody localization of TN5 occurs natively without cross-linking, like I was saying before. And this means that the epitope of interest, it must be abundant already. So that's why we suggest to do histone marks, because we already know that majority of them are abundant in most cell lines. And that's why we're able to say cut and tag it service and cut and tag it kit works efficiently for histone marks. Um, we do have a few transcription factors that have been validated for cut and tag, but it also depends on the cell line where you are having abundance of certain transcription factors versus histone marks. So we also suggest always doing a pilot if you're working with something that hasn't been validated. 
So one um, area of optimization in the chip assay is how much of the antibody you would need for an IP, for a successful IP. How much of the antibody would you need in a cut and tag experiment? I've been using one microgram uh, per sample uh, in all of my experiments. I also use about like one to 1.5 micrograms in the experiment. I think it also depends on how concentrated your antibody is. So if you're working with something that's a little less concentrated, maybe you will have to um, increase that just a little bit more. Like making sure that the label is telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I haven't had any issues with ours, but using some competitor antibodies, sometimes the uh, label uh, exaggerates the uh, concentration. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is uh, a little bit less, if I remember correctly, than compared to chip, right? Yeah. So in chip, we usually want to use around like, it depends. It goes from four micrograms to like six micrograms. So it is significantly less, especially working with antibodies that can be expensive or have less concentration. Is there a list of tested antibodies available? So do I have to optimize every antibody myself or can I rely on something that Active Motif tested? Well, the good part about Actimotif is we have a website and <laughs> on that website, we actually have a nice list that has validated cut and tag antibodies that we update every single time that we validate an antibody. So if you go into the search bar on our website, you type in cut and tag validated antibodies, you'll be able to see a list of the antibodies that and corresponding links to published material that has been validated. So the last defining step in the protocol is the tagmentation. Uh, um, this is carried out by a hyperactive TN5 transposase that is coupled to protein A. Um, the TN5 in the cut and tag is loaded with adapters to act as a transposome. Uh, could you briefly expa explain the mechanism of how it works? So uh, TN5 is part of a transposome that is one of the most well-studied transposomes around. Uh, it was originally discovered as a transposable element containing antibiotic resistance genes in E. coli, uh, and it's a compound transposon that consists of an insert sequence flanked by uh, two insertion elements. The transposase protein, or TNP, uh, binds those uh, insertion elements called IS-50 sites on each outside end of the transposon. Uh, then the two, since there's two outside ends, the two TNP outside end complexes join together and dimerize. And this complex of the two IS-50 bound transposases, uh, it forms a synaptic complex, which can then cleave DNA. Uh, so the TNP dimer complex will capture accessible target DNA, kind of like uh, an ATAC seq, which also uses TN5. Uh, and then it'll catalyze a reaction that makes a cut and ligates in a transposome sequence, that insertion sequence. Um, and that's something that we can customize. So the insertion sequence that we use in this prep, it, um, they're sequencing adapters. So the action, basically, we have a mark of interest. The protein A bound to the TN5 in the fusion protein recognizes the antibody that we, you know, that the researcher wants to use. Uh, then there's a cut made on each side of that site and a paste of the adapter sequences. And uh, from there, uh, it's sequence ready. I mean, you just have to amplify it. So you already said that uh, the, after the segmentation, um, the library is already ready, um, but it cannot be sequenced because it needs to be amplified by PCR for next generation sequencing. Um, is there anything that needs to be paid attention to in terms of the PCR, like cycle number or anything? 
Um, yeah. So you may get varying levels of enrichment due to the histone mark or the transcription factor that you were doing your cut and tag, um, assay on. So it's important to like pay attention to how many cycles of PCR you are getting because you want to be able to get a usable amount of the library for sequencing. So it's one of those things where we recommend a between nine to 13 cycles on of amplification. So I know currently in R&D, they run about nine cycles, I believe, or uh, nine to 13, depending nine to 13. Okay. We, we're on the high side on R&D. Yeah. And around services, we also do around like 10 to 11 cycles to just make sure that we are amplifying enough material and not losing anything in the process. So we're getting enough of that. So we're a little bit on the higher side also. And we don't want to go too high on the PCR amplifications because you are working with such a low amount of material already. You don't want to increase your duplication rates to get more unique reads when you're sequencing. So you want to make sure that your duplication stays relatively low. But it's overall compared to chip your cut and tag is going to have a higher duplication rate just because of how low the starting material is. How do you decide uh, how many cycles you are going to to do? Uh, I mean, you say between like uh, 9 and 14, and this is like a rather stark difference, right? And so how do you decide if you are st sticking to the 9 or to the 14 cycles? 14 might be too much. We really recommend going to 13. And then we do recommend if you have enough like extra material to try to do like a practice one run just to see like if you're doing like a bunch of cut and tag at once like we recommend maybe taking one amplify doing like maybe a nine a 10 and then a 13 and then running that on a bioanalyzer or a tape station and seeing how your actual libraries are looking the kit recommendation cycle number should be catch-all um it's really just if you want to get the most oomph out of your sequencing run that you would optimize your cycle numbers. So if you're going to be doing a lot of cut and tag, uh, I'd recommend optimizing. Yeah. So right now we we went through the protocol and it seemed pretty straightforward and there were not like many QC steps involved, right? I mean, we just talked about do it and it's fine. Um, but after the PCR, the library can indeed be analyzed on a tape station or bio analyzer, as you just mentioned. So what should a good library look like? What should the yield in terms of concentration of the library be? Uh, well, library is generated by cut and tag. Uh, yield will depend on the histone mark, uh, but I've been getting things ranging from maybe two nanomolar all the way up to like 40 nanomolar, depending. Um, you know, it generally correlates with the amount of input material um, in addition to the uh, how conserved the histone mark is. Um, but one thing you can tell on a tape station is that libraries generated by cut and tag or other assays involving a nuclease digestion. So like cut and run with the uh, MNAs or ATAC-seq or CHIP. Uh, I guess not CHIP. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, uh, assays involving a nuclease digestion have a distinctive nucleosomal laddering pattern uh, that researchers will be familiar with. Uh, you'll see bands on a gel or on a tape station uh, that come out about 180 base pairs apart. This varies by organism, but for like mice, we get a 180 base pairs apart. Uh, and this is just a result of the structure of the chromatin, uh, where about 150 base pairs of double-stranded DNA is wrapped around 
core histones, which have a protective effect. Um, so when you have uh, nuclease coming in and cutting at the accessible chromatin, uh, those bands of protected uh, DNA are getting preserved and you'll see sort of a ladder come out. So in general, if you see that ladder of bands, 180 base pair, 360 base pair, 540 base pair, uh, that's how you know that your cut and tag is working as it should, as opposed to just seeing maybe just one band. You mentioned that the concentration may vary quite a bit, actually. So did you see any correlation to the kind of histone modification you are analyzing? Like, do heterochromatin marks um, usually give a higher concentration or lower concentration than euchromatin marks? Or is this just the range I gave was maybe dramatic. The, the correlate I've been testing different input amounts going from you know uh, uh, 100,000 cells all the way down to uh, a few thousand cells, and you know uh, for research and development purposes, that's the main you know correlation with uh, varying yield at the end. Uh, so there will be uh, sort of uh, by mark variation, but. The variation I'm, I was describing earlier, the two nanomolar all the way to 40 nanomolar, um, that's a bit dramatic. That's because I've been working with um, radically different input amounts. So it's besides just the input amount, it is also the histomark. So if you don't have enough of the input in, but your histone is really conserved, you might not get as high as 40 nanomolarity. Or you might have like opposite where you have a less conserved histone mark and you have a bunch of input, you might not see like, again, that extremity on the higher end. So it's a trying to, I wouldn't focus as much on the concentration of your library as much as seeing those, that nice banding on an actual bioanalyzer or your gel or fracture tape station. So if you're seeing that, you probably are going to have a pretty good library. So what could the issue be if the library looks suboptimal? So what would it look like? Or so what would the peaks somehow differ? Or what, what could be the, what does it look like? And what could be the cause of this? Uh, well, we have noticed that um, there can be under tagmentation sometimes. Uh, We've noticed this both when the tagmentation conditions are suboptimal, uh, and that's like the incubation isn't carried out properly, it's too short or, or it's not hot enough or something like that. Um, or if you decrease the amount of input material, we see uh, under tagmentation start to increase. Uh, we figure because if there's less material in the same volume of reaction volume, uh, there's just fewer tagmentation events happening. And what under tagmentation looks like is Well, normally you would see that nucleosomal laddering starting at like 180 base pair, 360 base pair. Uh, if it's under tagmented, you would just see the higher uh, fragments, the ones 540 base pair and up. That said, uh, if it's showing up on a tape station, it's still sequenceable. So, uh, I mean, in general, uh, if you're seeing any sort of laddering like this, uh, then you could probably run it on your sequencer. Uh, would you also, or could you do like a right-sided cleanup or something like that? Uh, you could, though. Um, I, I don't know if I would recommend it. Like, uh, you're you have so much. Your starting material is already on the lower end with cut and tag. So my working in services, you kind of get to see a variety of really if, like efficient and really good like samples that have gotten done or stuff that might not 
be the best quality. So I, we don't do anything such as a cleanup or anything afterwards to try to enhance the library because you're already working with such a small amount. You don't want to lose anything in that process. So we don't really recommend that. That's something that a researcher could do that if they believe they have enough library to go forward with, they can do that. But again, it's kind of off of the protocol that and the kit that we're doing. I would just recommend if you're seeing anything on that tape station or that fragment analyzer or bioanalyzer, you should just go forward and go through that Kappa quantification to see how much you actually have. Because whenever I see something on the tape station, I usually know that that's a good process and we are probably going to get good results. And mainly that's because you're going to be sequencing at such a low depth already that it will be okay. Okay. So we finally have a sequencing ready library of our favorite histone mark, let's say. So let's go to sequencing. What kind of settings are typical use, typically used for a cut and take library also in comparison to chip? So chip, um, let's just get chip out of the way since we really <laughs> want to focus on cut and tag. So chip is a single end library. We use a eight index and we read at around like 75 cycles. So that's what chip is. So you're going to have a little bit more background in chip because you're using more library, more input. Things are just going to be more bound to that chromatin. And so you're going to get more pull down versus in cut and tag. I know for services and R&D, we both use a dual index library in eight by eight. And we also run our sequencer around 38 cycles. So it's significantly lower. So it's like 38 um, paired in 38. So we do this on a 75-cycle NextSeq cartridge. You can do this on NovaSeq. Um, there's different like sequencing. So just go forward and read through your sequencer guide and make sure that you're hitting the correct like minimum requirements for your sequencer. But we aim to really get around 8 to 30 million reads. 30 million reads, if you're sequencing at that high of a depth, a lot of it's going to be around like 50% is going to be duplication. So that's again where that where you want to make sure your PCR cycles are kind of optimized properly because you want to have that lower duplicate read. So we do recommend that if you're getting good eight to 10 million reads, that's a really good library. You'll have really good peaks and you'll also probably see a higher FRIP score around there with like more unique reads versus if you're sequencing at like 30 million reads with a high duplication rate, your FRIP score might end up being a little bit lower. And it also varies from chip where your FRIP is actually going to be on the lower end compared to chip. So finally, we have the data and we look at them in the genome browser. So let's say I have a comparable data set of the same histone mark, but this was again <laughs> generated using chip. Um, so will I see the same peak profile or will there be differences due to the techniques used? Uh, will the peaks have the different, sh a different shape or are the, they generally the same? Uh, well, with chip, you're doing a IP, uh, so you're doing a pull down and you're just sequencing sort of what comes off of that. Meanwhile, cut and tag, uh, the transposase is cutting on each end of your motif of interest. So uh, potentially cut and tag will have fragments that span nucleosomes and the enrichment uh, would be spread further than what you'd get um, in chip seek. Uh, so that'll change the peak shape to a degree. Uh, in addition, 
the uh, as Cassidy mentioned, the background in cut and tag is lower than that in ChipSeq because there's no cross-linking involved. So you're getting a bit of a higher signal to noise ratio. Uh, and that will also change the appearance of a site of enrichment uh, because you'll, you know, they'll see higher peaks relative to the rest of yeah, the background. Um, Ultimately, you'll see techniques, uh, specific differences, depending on, you know, who's prepping the library, but that's generally what cut and tag versus chip looks like. So would you have an example of where cut and tag was used, uh, which would have been difficult or maybe impossible with another method? So the main thing that is really different between chip seek and cut and tag, since they're very similar assays, let's do that comparison all the way through. And so... One thing is if you're working with material that is super low, like 100,000 cells, even 500,000 cells, you're not going to be able to get the best results out of doing a chip um, assay versus a cut and tag assay because you're going to be losing material at every single step during your fixation step, during your chromatin extraction step. So you're starting to already lose your limited amount of material. So cut and tag is nice because you end up just using less material. It's a more efficient assay. So if you're somebody that doesn't have the time to do maybe a full week of getting down and doing eight hour days in the lab for chip, you can do cut and tag within two days of having fresh cells. So that's really the beneficial and that makes it easier to work with clinical samples, easier to work with limited materials and easier to work with your time, especially if you are busy. So now that we have gone through every detail of the cut and tag protocol and outlined the potential pitfalls and talked about solutions, I have two or maybe three further questions. Uh, what is the advantage of cut and take over methods like ChipSeq? Maybe we can summarize it, what we have talked about for the last like 30 minutes. Of course. Uh, first thing, you can work with less starting material. So that'll be especially useful for clinical samples because if you're doing biopsies, uh, you know, tissue uh, cut and tag is still pending. But uh, if you're doing biopsies, you can only get a very small amount of tissue uh, from patients. So if you want to work off of less starting material, then cut and tag would be your way to go. Also, it produces a sequence-ready library, so you don't have to do the extra um, step of creating a library after you have already eluded your DNA, which it makes it a more efficient protocol. And also, it allows you to keep more of your, more of your material. And the protocol in general is faster. It's as Cassidy mentioned, chip will take a week. Uh, meanwhile, cut and tag will take two days. You can finish the whole thing in one day if you decrease the, I mean, the original Hennikoff paper uh, involved a shorter primary incubation time and they were able to get it done in one day. I, I think our protocol recommendation sticks to two days, um, but I'm more comfortable with that because, you know, that's, two relatively medium length days versus one really long day. But either way, it's less time than Chip takes. And Hennikov even did it in his garage, so that's awesome. Indeed. <laughs> uh, skill set. <laughs> Are there also some disadvantages you can think of or that you want to mention? Well, because of the lack of the cross-linking that you have in Chip, so in Chip, uh, factors that whose relationship with the chromatin is kind of transitory, like, like transcript, many transcription factors, Uh, you can grab those in chip because you cross-link, but there's no cross-linking in cut and tag. Everything is done natively. So uh, you're 
limited to highly, highly expressed marks or marks that um, are highly expressed just natively. Um, so that would be the main limitation. I think that's really the main one is having the histone marks, but we are trying to work to make the protocol more efficient for transcription factors. So being on the lookout, that's definitely something we will be doing in the future. And also one pitfall might be that it's a new method, right? I mean, CHIP has been around for like 20, 25 years. I might be wrong. But uh, yeah, it's still a new method. There are many publications coming out now. They are preprints. They might not be peer-reviewed yet. So what is your like experience? When would you recommend to using cut and tag? And when would you still recommend to using ChIP-seq? Um, so I think that I would recommend using ChIP-seq for transcription factors, especially if you have enough material. If you are working with something that might be a little bit more limited and you're willing to do transcription factors using cut and tag, you can go that route. It's not recommended just because you might be during all the wash steps, washing away your transcription factor, and thus you will not be able to get that. And it's especially if you are just wanting to focus on um, like something that might be validated in other papers and something that could be more efficient of a protocol. So I think like we were saying, all of the pros is that you'll be able to get this paper, get your data done faster and more efficiently. You'll be able to have a sequence ready library without having to go through all of the steps of creating a library like you do after chip. And also you will be mainly focused around histone marks, but there is good data around histone marks and people are publishing data around histone marks all the time. So one thing we did not talk about yet is like controls. Um, what kind of controls would you recommend doing in a cut and take experiment? Um, because there might be some artificial ataxic background or something like that. How do you control for that? Uh, the way I do it is I, uh, so in cut and tag during the primary and secondary antibody, uh, addition, the, the addition of the primary and secondary antibody, you're trying to uh, target your TN5. So the control that I use is sort of a negative control is just IgG as the primary antibody, because then you're not going to be targeting your epitope of interest. You're just going to be just targeting just randomly uh, and comparing the profile of an IgG run versus a targeted run should give you a good idea of what the true background looks like. And it'll let you pick out um, your peaks, your desired peaks. So, um, yeah, we talked about nearly everything, but let's look a little bit into the future. <laughs> What is Active Motif working on currently to improve the current limitations of the cut and tag portfolio? Maybe is there also something in terms of normalization? Indeed. Uh, so in our research and development, we're currently working on a spike in uh, for cut and tag so that you can have sort of a constant signal to compare uh, systemic changes to. Um, and this will uh, allow you to normalize uh, your results between, a, say, a treated and an untreated sample. Uh, so that's something that's coming up, uh, and it's spike similar. in normalization. And it's similar to the spike in normalization that we currently have in our um, chip services. And I believe we also sell a spiking kit. Um, yeah, so that's something similar that we can provide as a normalization. So be on the lookout for that in the future, especially since cut and tag doesn't use an input, unlike chip where you can use an input to 
validate whether you are getting actual peaks or if it's background. And uh, I also mentioned briefly that uh, also coming up, we're working on cut and tag for tissue samples, uh, especially low input tissue samples. So the goal is to eventually be able to take a small amount of tissue, uh, process that, and then proceed with the regular cut and tag. And that'll be hugely useful, especially with small inputs uh, for things like human biopsies. Yeah, I think we covered everything for the cut and tag. Is there anything we missed or did we cover everything that you uh, wanted to share? I think that's really what it is broken down to. It's a few steps and we try to always just get good sequenceable material. Um, the antibodies that are validated, the list is pretty long already, pretty comprehensive. Uh, on our website, we also link to uh, the papers wherein uh, antibodies uh, were validated. So I, I'd say that's another thing uh, is that the list is growing every day. So check the website. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Cassidy and Kyle for your time and for being on the show. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.